Hello and welcome to this edition of Cato Connects. My name is Caleb Brown. I'm the director of multimedia here at the Cato Institute. North Korea continues to pose a vexing problem for the United States and, of course, its neighbors, uh, most specifically China. To talk about that today, we're going to talk with Doug Bandau. He is a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute and has recently returned from North Korea. He's been studying North Korea uh, for many years, and uh, this is his second trip uh, to the hermit kingdom, <laughs> as it's called. Um, and with rhetoric as hot as it is, Doug, right now, um, I guess, should Americans be worried about the, the, the direction that this tension has, has gone? Well, they should be worried, though I think the fears are overblown. I mean, if you would go to Seoul today or Pyongyang or Beijing, you wouldn't find anybody planning on war. You wouldn't find anyone heading towards bomb shelters. They're all used to this. But frankly, what has unsettled people and friends of mine in Seoul who I've recently talked to is that they see in the White House now somebody who seems caught up in the same rhetoric. And they're not used to that. Traditionally, you know, America was seen as kind of a stable force. Today, people aren't so sure. That's, that's raising, I think, concerns. All right. If you have any questions for Doug Bandow, tweet them out. Use the hashtag CatoConnects or send them to uh, my uh, Twitter handle, at C-O-Brown, and we'll try to get to as many of those uh, questions as we can over the course of the next half hour or so. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, uh, recently tweeted out, military solutions are now fully in place, locked and loaded. Should North Korea act unwisely, hopefully Kim Jong-un will find another path. Uh, some people uh, cheekily suggested that he was violating Twitter's terms of service <laughs> by uh, th issuing that uh, threat. Uh, but Kim Jong-un, of course, and the, the regime in North Korea have also been issuing threats of their own, most specifically, most recently, with respect to Guam. And does that change anything about where we stand with this country? Well, no. I mean, the threats coming from Pyongyang have been coming from Pyongyang for years. In fact, their rhetoric has rarely changed. I mean, years ago, they put out a YouTube video showing New York City in flames. I mean, this is before they had an ICBM that one could imagine even hitting the United States. So that, what we see from uh, North Korea, they're acting out of weakness. You know, this is bluff. This is bluster. They want a deterrent because they're afraid of the U.S. They try to act strong through their rhetoric. What's changed is they're getting a kind of from the other side, from the U.S., the superpower is talking in the same terms. That's revved everything up. And that's what's changed from the past. Is the, just the change in rhetoric from one administration to another. Haven't previous administrations been fairly uh, critical and sort of wagged their fingers at, at North Korea and uh, tried to get tough with them? Bill Clinton, I'm thinking of. Well, they've always been tough and they've always said, you know, I mean, an attack on the U.S., of course, the U.S. would respond with extraordinary force. Bill Clinton considered military options and trying to preemptively take out the, uh, any of the North Korean nuclear facilities. Uh, he was dissuaded you know, by the South Koreans because the South Koreans are the ones who would end up being a battlefield if war started. He's the last president that we know of who seriously considered that. And he didn't talk about it a lot rhetorically. I mean, that's the difference is you're, you know, nobody was tweeting. Nobody was responding in the same kind of apocalyptic terms. It was a tough response, but a much more restrained response. All right. You wrote uh, here in a, in a piece at <clears throat> Forbes, Pyongyang wants to avoid, not wage, war against America. Hopefully the Trump administration also wants to avoid a conflict. If the U.S. was not over there, seemingly threatening military action and regime change, the DPRK, 
the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, almost certainly would ignore Washington. So what does it mean that the U.S. has 28,000 troops in South Korea? How does that how does that change the calculus? Well, the thing to realize about the North Koreans is this is an evil regime. That doesn't mean it's a suicidal regime. You know, the, the thing they really want is regime survival. We've got this weird system of monarchical communism. We're into the third generation. All the evidence is all of these uh, your rulers want their virgins in this world, not the next. These are not people planning to go out with a big bang. And what they see from the United States is the U.S. is a, a great threat. You know, North Korea has been you know, lost out to South Korea. South Korea has 40 times the GDP, twice the population, massive international presence, great wealth. And then South Korea is backed by the U.S. North Korea could not win a conventional war, and they know that. The great equalizer is nuclear weapons. And they look around them, and they also look at Afghanistan, Iraq, and frankly, Libya. And they say the U.S. likes to enact regime change. The U.S. is here. It overflies with bombers. It sends the armada, as the president calls it, offshore. What's the great deterrent? The great deterrent is nuclear weapons. So uh, we have a question here from T. May. He says, should the U.S. offer to negotiate directly with North Korea dropping any preconditions? That seems <clears throat> unlikely. Well, they're not likely to do so, but it makes sense to me. That is so far and what the Obama administration wanted was we'll talk to you, but you have to agree ahead of time to denuclearization. Now, of course, that's our objective, and I'd like to see that. I don't know many people outside of the North who want the North to have nuclear weapons, but they're very unlikely to do that. This is a huge issue for the North. They were very explicit when I visited, saying this is, we're committed to this. We're not going to give it up. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Part of that, I think, is deterrence, but it's also it gives them international stature. It's important domestically. This is part of the regime kind of strengthening its ties to the military. This is the one force that the party has to pacify. I think talking to them is important. You know, you might not get an agreement, but you certainly should engage them, demanding they concede the main issue before you talk to them as a non-starter. Uh, you've also written here uh, on the National Interest online. Of course, Doug Bandow sends us all of his clips from uh, his various writings, and it is voluminous, it's particularly about North Korea. You write, only if Washington stops targeting the DPRK is the latter likely to see no need for a nuclear deterrent against America. Washington policymakers must decide if they believe defending South Korea is worth endangering the American people. Uh, related to that, and I spoke with uh, Chris Preble uh, for an upcoming Cato podcast about this, uh, China has sent a sort of a message to both countries, uh, the U.S. and North Korea, and said essentially to North Korea, hey, if you do something stupid, you're on your own. And to the United States, uh, the message was, we're going to look very carefully at whether or not what you're engaged in is, uh, uh, is some sort of preemptive action or a preventive action. And that, that's, a big, that's a big difference for China, as it should be for uh, any country who, that has allies. Exactly. Well, what's important to realize is that the, the Chinese-North Korean relationship is not a good one. The North Koreans are very independent. Uh, they you know, basically don't want to be told what to do, including by China. I mean, I visited the, uh, the museum, the, the was a victorious Fatherland War Museum. And what was interesting is there was no mention that I could see of China. That what you found was the North Koreans basically said, we won the Korean War. That is Kim Il-sung and a few other guys. China's not mentioned. Of course, China put hundreds of thousands of troops in, had mass casualties that included a son of uh, Mao Zedong. 
So the, you know, the Chinese know this. But the Chinese, this is a, a matter of interest for them. They don't want to have a failed state. They don't want a big American base, U.S. troops right on their border. So they care about the issue strategically. They don't want to go to war. They're certainly not going to rescue North Korea like before. But I think the distinction between preventive and preemptive war is very important. The idea of preemption is you take out an imminent threat that's about to happen. So if we thought the North Koreans were actually about to launch a strike against the U.S., it would make sense to take out what we could. Very different is the idea we're going to wage war because we think who knows what might happen in the future. That's what we did in Iraq. It didn't turn out well. And the point is Iraq didn't have a big power ally. The Chinese would be looking at this. I don't think they'd go to war with this, but they'd certainly have an impact on their behavior towards us and elsewhere in the region. To what extent do you think uh, China is the adult in the room right now? Well, you know, when there was the summit between President Xi Jinping and President Donald Trump, my reaction coming out of that was I'd love to be in the Politburo meeting in, North, in, uh, in Beijing when President Xi reported on what happened. Because you had President Trump effusively talking about, oh, we got along so wonderfully, I love him, etc. And it's very hard to imagine President Xi having responded in those terms. China has a lot at stake here. They have a long-term perspective. And I think you're right. President Xi is a very serious guy. He doesn't spend his time tweeting. He spends his time taking out political opponents. He spends his time trying to build a powerful future. He spends his time, frankly, cracking down on dissent. I don't like him, but he's a very serious character. He brings this seriousness to foreign policy, including North Korea. All right. A question here from David Clement. Uh, he says, um, if Reagan were president today, how would he handle North Korea? We famously remember uh, <clears throat> Reagan dealing with the Soviet Union, essentially speaking to them without any preconditions. What, uh, what would Reagan? You worked in the Reagan administration. Yep. What would he do? I think Reagan would, number one, speak seriously but relatively softly saying, you know, you better not attack. I mean, you better not do anything stupid. So I think that part of the message would resonate. But he'd do it simply, you know, tell them what not to do and then leave it. There wouldn't be histrionics. There wouldn't be trying to outbid the North Koreans in rhetoric. It'd be a very serious message. You don't dare attack us. You don't attack our treaty allies. You cease to exist. At the same time, he'd want to engage them. What was striking about Reagan, which was not understood at the time, but I think historians now understand, is how horrified he was at the thought of nuclear war. I mean, he talked about Star Wars defense because he was horrified at the thought, you know, we're naked. I mean, if you fire the nukes, they go, you blow up societies. He wanted to engage the Soviets because he understood that a nuclear war would have no winner. It would be utterly destructive. So he would not be ginning up the rhetoric with the North Koreans. He'd want to find a way to tamp it down. He wouldn't have an easy time at it. There's no easy solution here. But I don't believe he'd respond like President Trump did. I think he'd be tough and say, you know, you don't, don't think you don't make a mistake. But at the same time, he'd say, let's talk. Let's figure a way out of this. At what point does the U.S. and the rest of the world treat North Korea as a nuclear power? And <clears throat> what does that look like in terms of how we treat countries who are that are nuclear powers? Well, at some level, it already is a nuclear power. I mean, the, the fact the U.S. has for 20 years said we will not accept you know, North Korea being a nuclear power doesn't change the fact that we think, at least the estimates that are commonly used, that they have enough plutonium, enough you know, nuclear materials to make perhaps 20 nuclear weapons now. 
We don't know they've done that. There's still argument about their ability to miniaturize. CIA now thinks they may have done that. We don't know that for certain. But in that sense, they are a nuclear power. The question is deliverability. I mean, these are issues we still don't know, but to some degree, they're there. Then the question is, do you accept it? We refuse to accept it. You know, we changed that policy on India. And we, you know, put sanctions on. We wouldn't accept India being nuclear power. And the Bush administration, I think, correctly decided they have nuclear weapons. They won't give them up. This is an important democratic power. They're using them as a constraint, among other things, on not just Pakistan, but China. We have to be real here. And I think that's the issue facing us in terms of North Korea. It's still worth trying to get nuclear weapons away from them. But we might at some point be stuck with a choice between do you come up with a freeze and accept them at 20 nuclear weapons or do you have them continuing to produce and being at, say, 100 nuclear weapons? That is a very scary prospect, a much scarier prospect than, say, freezing them at where they're at today. All right. You write uh, here also in Forbes, personal contact, especially the more extended, less formal ties developed within tourist groups, plants seeds for the possible future transformation of North Korea, visiting Westerners impart information and encourage curiosity and engagement will do will not directly change the system but isolation only reinforces the status quo what are we looking at in terms of where the united states china and other neighbors are uh, headed with trying to bring north korea into well at least the 20th century um, if not the 21st century, and uh, allow them to sort of engage with the world in a, in a less confrontational way. It's important to recognize that our attempt at isolation has not changed them. <clears throat> we haven't stopped their nuclear program. There is no evidence at the moment, I think, that we're going to do so that way. It certainly hasn't transformed them internally. Everyone I know would love to see a democratic regime there, one that supported human rights. But unfortunately, we haven't got that. So then the question is, can you try to encourage the internal transformation? It's not going to be easy. You know, the North Korean leadership is not stupid. They understand the dangers. But it's important to recognize the change over time. I was there 25 years ago. 25 years ago, it was much more the hermit kingdom, much more sealed, much harder for North Koreans to get information, etc. Today, it's very different. You know, in Pyongyang, you find there are private automobiles. People have cell phones. Now, they're not supposed to talk internationally, but they have cell phones. I'm there with people who are looking at their cell phones and texting that you would never have imagined 25 years ago. I flew in sitting next to a British tourist who said, I'm coming in for my third trip. And one of the things I'm doing is we're going to fly over Pyongyang in a helicopter. Now, the idea that Pyongyang would allow foreigners over the capital city, I found astounding. It wouldn't have happened 25 years ago. The uh, a, a kind of access to South Korean materials, including soap operas, one of the things they're very scared about are flash drives. When I came in, they cataloged my electronic equipment, including two flash drives. Because South Korean you know, soap operas, what you do there is what happened in the Soviet Union. You don't just look at kind of the action. You also look at the surroundings. You look at supermarkets. You see cars. You see homes. You see how people live. It gives a lie to the system. We need to encourage that. And the point is, internal transformation is one of the great hopes. Again, no guarantee, 
I mean, you know, this could go on for a long time. But if we don't have an answer, let's use all avenues. One of those avenues is travel. It's trade. It's getting people in there and trying to transform. So over the long term, the next you know leadership that arises might have very different attitudes. Another question here. This one is from uh, Corey Adler. <clears throat> With all the rhetoric now, should the U.S. invest in an upgraded missile defense system for Guam like Israel's arrow? Thank you, Corey. Well, I think missile defense makes a lot of sense. I mean, missile defense is genuine defense of the U.S. To me, that's one issue that really is not a question. I mean, much of what we do, in my view, is not defense. It's offense. It has very little to do with defending America. I'd like to stop missiles from coming in, whether it be Guam, whether it be the United States. You know, you're sharing that technology to South Korea, Japan, Israel, and others makes a lot of sense. That, I think, is a useful, you know, issues of technical achievement, as it capabilities, all of those are legitimate, but I'd say it's, that's a good program. All right. So in, in general, uh, in your most recent visit to uh, North Korea, you visited North Korea 25 years <clears throat> ago this month. Um, what has changed? What were, what were the, some of the most striking things that were different, not just about technolo- technology or uh, food or construction, but uh, in attitudes, were they were they different? Now, I didn't get to the countryside this time. I did before, and I talked to aid workers who were in the countryside and said it hasn't changed nearly as much. Countryside was very very poor when I visited 25 years ago. Sounds like that isn't much different. But Pyongyang, one of the big differences, it clearly is wealthier. I mean, it's just you know new construction, private automobiles. They actually need stoplights now. Social attitudes, fashion, I mean, little things that suggest more individuality. I mean, women dress nice now. 25 years ago, both men and women were very plain. Men are still pretty plain. But women were dressing in high heels, skirts, colored blouses. They carry umbrellas for the sun that were multicolored, hairdos. I mean, this this was a different world that I was looking at. And, you know, they are much more businesslike in terms of, well, things like tourism, the fact that they'd actually sell tours that have people flying in helicopters over Pyongyang. <laughs> I stayed at a hotel. They actually, the restaurant had, you know, a menu that had photos and the food that came out was recognizably, oh, that's chicken Kiev, as opposed to 25 years ago where I didn't get to order anything. They just brought me stuff. And it was more or less edible, but it was never quite clear what it was. I mean, it's clearly more engaged with the world. That You get that sense, you know, foreign visitors there. They were there 25 years ago, but today, much more of a sense the outside world is there. But again, this is, you know, this is not, you know, it hasn't been transformed. This is not a market economy. This is not Shanghai. But still that sense that things are changing. It's very hard to get personal attitudes. I mean, Pyongyang is home to the apparatchiks. People there are in the highest social classification, especially ones who've grown up there. They have a lot to lose. They're not going to confide in me. You know, but you do get that sense of, you know, they, they, you know, they seem knowledgeable. They understand the outside world. You know, the way you talk to them, you know, they're clearly, you get the cliches, but you also get a sense there's intelligence behind that. You talk a bit about the family. They care about their families. They care about their children. I mean, that there's, there's more to North Korea than just the politics, even though the politics is kind of oppressive and ubiquitous. There's still something more there. And I, I felt in the capital it was just a much different place, more colorful, modern buildings, you know, a lot of bicycles now, 25 years ago, very few bicycles, which is interesting. You know, it's a, a different place. What are the hopes for North Korea and what would be the steps, <clears throat> the, the, 
the, the point that, that you make that uh, I think needs to be spelled out a little more is that the primary hope of change for North Korea is will come from within. So what are the what are the possibilities that we'll see like a you know 1979 sort of switch like we did in China that sort of leads to a blossoming of a, right. a real functional economy. Uh, obviously, China has a long way to go, and North Korea has much further to go. But what is that something that could be on the horizon? Well, Kim Jong Un, he's 33 years old, is does seem really committed on the economics. That's one of the very interesting changes. I mean, I brought up some of the markets they have. I mean, they have much more private markets and things. And they were horrified, said, oh, my goodness, we're not capitalists, we're socialists. And I said, yeah, but I mean, there are these markets out there. Oh, well, they did those in Eastern Europe. Oh, you know, that, oh, that's just part, that's part of socialism. So they were trying to, in a sense, incorporate a rising focus on markets simply as part of the socialist system. You know, they don't have private enterprises, but what they do have is more authority and autonomy for the government enterprises, they do have a lot of markets out there for buying and selling things. You know, that I think is hopeful. And one aspect of that is that now they've tasted prosperity. I mean, you get that sense that at least in Pyongyang, and again, Pyongyang's different than a lot of the countryside. Countryside lowers social classification. They don't care much about you. Pyongyang has the apparatchiks, the leadership. But these people are living better. Giving them a taste of a better life, I think, is very important because suddenly they know there's more possible. It also means they have more to lose through things like sanctions, that you know, they want development. I think that's, that's a very useful thing. On the downside is Korea, in a sense, North Korea has a problem, if I want to call it problem, of South Korea. That is, the Soviet Union changes, apparatchiks, the leadership, people who've lost political power still can get chunks of the economy. They can do well. They can become leaders. They have international contacts. North Korea, the fear is, as they put it to me, is being swallowed. If the North Korean system goes, it's not like everybody there who's a member of the Korean Workers' Party now can become an entrepreneur. Instead, people come in from the South with a lot of money and they fear being swamped. So that's the challenge. What's the role of those who are displaced? And that, I'm worried, may you know, cause them to be fight harder to try to prevent that kind of change. So the, the leadership as a... <clears throat> an interest group uh, is, is very interested in keeping their hold on power, but but also improving standards of living That's as well right. and trying to find that balance. So there's a tension. There's a very real tension there. The, you know, the current leader seems more interested in risking it. His father seemed to say, forget the economic reform. I just want to hold on to power. All right. You've written also, uh, Washington should indicate to Beijing what it is prepared to do to mitigate the costs of North Korean breakdown, such as helping to finance the care of refugees and accepting <clears throat> Chinese military intervention to stabilize a reform government in the North. The Republic of Korea and Japan also be, should be members of such pledges. The Trump administration needs to negotiate, not dictate. What is the relationship between North Korea and China? It seems... Uh, that China is in many ways a, a powerful enabler of the kinds of repression that you see in North Korea. I would call China and uh, North Korea kind of frenemies. You know, it's kind of a term that people have come up with, where you know friends in one sense, but pretty hostile in some other senses. I mean, North Korea has always been independent, has always played powers against one another. In the 1950s, the founding dictator Kim Il Sung took out all the opposition forces that included a pro-China faction within the, uh, the, the Communist Party in the North. 
Beijing was not happy. Didn't matter. I mean, Kim Il-sung was going to run his own place. You know, what we now, in a sense, have this kingdom of monarchy. You know, it's not going to be run by the Chinese. They, they had very bad relations during the Mao era and the Cultural Revolution. Got better. They're not happy about Chinese recognition and dealing with the South. People have witnessed shouting matches at some of the negotiations where the North Koreans have denounced the Chinese for kind of working with the U.S. and other countries. You find within North Korean, uh, you know, popular, uh, kind of, or at least the government press, attacks on China. When I was there, I mean, I was again fascinated by the museum that didn't show any recognition of China's role. So th there's a difficult relationship there. But from China's standpoint, they're not irrational. And it's not simply, you know, some people think, well, they're just using the North. Well, the North is a useful buffer for them, but they don't control it. China would like to have a much more pliable, <coughs> less unstable buffer. You know, so they're not happy with the current leadership, but they don't want a failed state. It's not hard to get across to Yalu. I've visited China on the other side, Dandong, which is just across the river from Sinuju. They have the bridge there where they have a lot of traffic going across. But it's not hard for refugees to get across. One could imagine a collapse, a violent collapse of the north and have five million refugees suddenly streaming into China. It's not what they want. They don't want a violent factional fighting. What if the military breaks down? That's not a good thing. Loose nuclear weapons. And they also really don't want a united Korea allied with America and American troops on the Yalu. They went to war in 1950 to stop American troops from being on the Yalu. Now, you know, it really wouldn't matter geopolitically, I suppose, given you know, weaponry and advanced uh, weapons America has. But there's still something important for China not being expected to turn over its one ally in the region and create kind of a base, advanced base for the United States as part of a containment system. So I think we have to talk to the Chinese. I mean, one of the potential trades is you tell the Chinese, you guys do something with the North. We won't have any U.S. troops there if there's reunification. You know, South Korea could say, look, we're going to stay neutral. We won't be allied with America. I mean, if this gets solved and the North disappears, you won't lose geopolitically. I think we've got to engage the Chinese. Now we just tell them what we want. Well, the Chinese know what we want. But they have wants as well. And as far as I can tell, it's more than just a trade deal, which the president seems to think is enough. You know, they have to believe that their security interests will be protected. So far, I haven't seen us address that. How critical uh, is trade uh, to North Korea? I know China provides them with technology. I know a lot of the technology that's gone into a lot of the consumer electronics that are now popping up in North Korea came from China. But uh, as, as horrible as the regime is, is it uh, is it valuable to the regime? Is it important for the United States to try to create some sort of basic trading relationship in, in terms of at least some goods that might help lower the temperature? Well, China is, accounts for something like 90% of total trade. Okay. I mean, that, that, it's a huge number. Uh, much of uh, North Korea's most important are energy and food shipments. Those are uh, you know, things that are in short supply at times in the North. Most of that comes from China. So if China wanted to kind of step on North Korea's windpipe, what you would do is you'd focus on energy and agriculture. And what they're doing now, if they follow through, the recent sanctions, you know, ban shipments of, uh, you know, coal, of lead, and of uh, seafood. Those are also major exports. They bring in a fair amount of hard currency. If China follows through on that, it could cost the North a billion dollars a year. That won't bring the regime down, but it'll certainly dry up a lot of the extra money It'll make it harder to satisfy kind of a rising middle class in the North. That will hurt. 
what potentially could destroy the system is cutting off food and energy. The challenge with that, of course, is the North, the China doesn't want a failed state. And you know, North Korea might say, forget it. We don't care. We're going to go on. Late 1990s, famine killed at least a half million North Koreans. The regime survived. So this is, this is a game here. And the, from the Chinese standpoint, it's a very dangerous one. They really don't want to collapse. So they want to put enough pressure on to get change. But nobody knows what that point is. And if the North resists, how far are you willing to go? That's what China's dealing with. I think it makes sense from our standpoint to offer the prospect of trade and investment. You don't do that now, but that's one reason to talk to them is to say, look, we're interested in changing this relationship. Here's what you could get. You know, at least give them a sense there's a positive there as opposed to simply all they see is negative. All right. So how likely is it that the United States will – I mean we have a president in, in the White House who doesn't necessarily want us expanding trade with uh, uh, people, countries that are U.S. allies. Uh, certainly uh, trading or expanding trade or trying to uh, create that kind of important, valuable relationship with uh, North Korea is uh, – seems a bridge too far. Is it, is it at all likely that the U.S. will engage in any trade with North Korea? Well, you know, this president, despite his many foibles, has actually occasionally said some interesting things in dealing with North Korea. I mean, at one point he said he'd be happy to meet, he even said he'd be honored to meet Kim Jong-un. That's certainly not the way I would put it. But you know, a willingness to meet with Kim Jong-un suggests somebody willing to break with received wisdom. That you know, he's talked about uh, you know, in terms of China, you know, wanting to get them to help on North Korea, of going easier on them on trade. So despite the promises he made during the campaign on trade, he's been criticized for this. He's essentially said, well, you know, I'm willing to throw some of that overboard if it helps, you know, dealing with China. So there's at least a possibility that he could be induced to go in that direction. The problem is I don't know see anybody around him <clears throat> to actually make a policy. Very hard. You know, the president says these things, but everybody around him goes in a different direction. Then it's really hard to make that work. But I think it could work. And I think he has that willingness to get beyond conventional wisdom. The problem is he doesn't have anybody around him to do it. And he also he just doesn't have I mean, he doesn't stick with anything. A very short attention span. It's hard to get good policy out of him. All right. So, you know, if you're looking at uh, six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, North Korea appears that it will become, if nothing changes, <clears throat> will become a country that has both nuclear weapons and delivery systems capable of hitting the west coast of the United States. What, ha what happens then? Does the, do, what happens between now and then? And how does our uh, relationship with North Korea, with China, change when that moment uh, comes to pass? What I think is going to happen is you're going to see greater urgency, greater concern, and greater demands coming out of Washington as we get closer to that. On the other hand, they're going to feel very constrained. I mean, they criticize the Obama administration. Strategic patience hasn't worked. And yes, it didn't work. On the other hand, they don't have any good answers either. They don't want to talk unless they get a preemptive surrender, essentially, from North Korea. That's very unlikely to happen. <clears throat> they're going to want, I think, continuing greater sanctions. Every new test, they're going to press the Chinese. But I think that's where resistance steps in. That China's willing to go step by step up to the point where they're afraid they actually will destroy the regime. And I think at that point, it's going to be no more. And then the administration is going to be very frustrated. 
And then you're likely to see more talk about you know, some sort of preventative war. But that will, you know, if you want to freak out South Korea, that's the way to do it. Seoul is about 30, 35 miles from the border. North Korea has, we believe, scuds that they can load with chemical and biological weapons. They have a lot of dug-in artillery. Not all of that can reach all of Seoul, but you know, imagine an artillery barrage on New York City. I mean, Seoul is a massive kind of metropolitan area of 12, 13 million people. It's the heartland, industrial, governmental, political heart of South Korea. Imagine an, you know, a bombardment of New York City and what that would do. And if the North Koreans believe military action is a, simply the start of a preventative war, they're going to start the attack. I mean, it'll be a real second Korean war. They lose, but there's mass destruction. General Mattis knows this and has said we need a diplomatic solution. The South Koreans are saying this very clearly. I think the Japanese would agree and certainly the Chinese. So I think it'll be hard for the president to start a war. And then what he's going to find is the North Koreans keep moving closer and there's no answer. It's going to be extraordinarily frustrated. All right, Doug. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for joining us here for this edition of Cato Connects. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, or ideas for improving the program, you can send them to me, cbrown at cato.org, or tweet them at me, at cobrown. And uh, we'll talk to you again next time. Bye.